from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol, or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and vindication from from God his Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. I had to smile earlier when Ian talked about uh, me being on holidays. It's always funny when you've got five kids and you think about what it means to have time off. Like it's not exactly uh, sticking your feet up and all in front of the TV, I can assure you. (laughs) But it's certainly a change from regular activities, so that's always good. Uh, If you've looked at the front of your bulletin, you'll notice that I've done a little bit of a hint about what I'm going to be speaking about. There's a little bit of a idea there about kingship and how we live in a world where not everybody thinks of God as king. That's some of what this psalm talks about. Let's pray now and then uh, consider this psalm 24. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness that you've um, not left us in the dark, but you've made yourself known to us through your son and that your word was handed down to us, the scriptures, by people who were carried along by your spirit. Lord, we thank you that we can grapple with these things today and we thank you that your spirit uh, works in our hearts to, that we might be people who accept the deep truths that you give to us. And we ask that uh, you would shape our lives, change our hearts, transform the way that we think about the world and life from a rebellious and sinful human point of view to think about things from your point of view. And we thank you that your word does uh, change us as we contemplate it. We pray that you would help us to um, grow this morning in response to it. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wasn't long in my job as a school chaplain before a member of staff wanted to have a pretty meaningful chat with me about uh, their mission at school. And what I thought about their mission at school. The person that I spoke to saw the state as having the key role in deciding what children ought to believe. And they saw that their mission in many ways was about protecting children from what parents might teach them. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? I think she was probably thinking about kids coming from cult-type backgrounds. But for my part, uh, I made a case for parents being the primary educators of their children. Based on what the Bible teaches us about parents 
bringing up their children in the training and instruction of the Lord, which is what Paul tells us in Ephesians to do. And I've pointed out that the state is actually not neutral uh, when it comes to the ultimate questions of life. And that by leaving God uh, out of the picture in classroom curricula, the state makes it pretty clear what it thinks about God. Now, have you ever had a discussion with someone that went a bit like that, where it seemed that both of you were talking about a same topic, but you were speaking different languages? That's what it felt like for me that day as I discussed these things. I thought, well, we're speaking about the same kind of business, but we're certainly uh, missing a bit, really. Uh, it's, it's like we're talking two different languages. An author called James Sire captured this kind of situation uh, in a book that was titled The Universe Next Door. That book picks up on the idea that although people share the same biology, they don't always share the same ideology. And Sting uh, wrote a song about that a few years ago too. But while we can um, be living our life with fairly careful and specific answers to the ultimate questions of life, questions like where the world has come from, where it's all going, what the meaning of the world is, what are the differences between people and animals, and what happens after death, we can find that the person next door to us has a completely different kind of universe running around their heads. Now, as Christians, we're people who don't want to look at this in a very arbitrary way and just say, oh, well, this is what we reckon. We understand life and the world from God's point of view as it's revealed to us in the Scriptures. And today, as we uh, come to terms with Psalm 24, we're confronted with the news that God is King and that he remains King, whether people recognise his kingship or not. So if you'll pick that up with me, if you turn to Psalm chapter 24, I'll focus firstly on verses 1 and 2, where we notice that the very creation is God's. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Verse 1 reminds us that God owns the whole world, that it's all of it is his. He owns everything in it which includes people, whether they are black or white, Anglos, Eskimos, or Emos, as you might have heard of these days. All things are gods. And verse 2 gives us the reason why it is gods. And it's because he is the one who founded it or established it upon the waters. Uh, the ancient world, people were very aware that when they dug a well in the ground, the, uh, the waters were below. Uh, and it seems that rivers also ended up in the lowest points of the earth. Uh, and so they drew the natural assumption that it's founded upon the waters. Modern plate tectonics might show that there's more to it than that. But certainly this is a view about the world that uh, God is the one who has established it. It's not a random accident that come out of nowhere. There is a creator who's behind it. Uh, and it's secure because of that. The creation that he made is the one that we live on and that we enjoy. But that's a very God-centred view of the world, isn't it? That psalmist is giving us here. David, the psalmist, is giving us a, a, a view of the world from God's point of view. But not everybody in the ancient world accepted that kind of view. There have been other uh, creation accounts. One of them is called 
the Enuma Elish, which is a Babylonian creation myth. Enuma Elish means when on high, which is the first line of that particular story. Uh, and I'll give you a bit of a taste of uh, this, this perspective. Tiamat and Marduk strove in single combat, locked in battle. Marduk spread out his net to enfold her, and the evil wind which followed behind, he let loose in her face. When Tiamat opened her mouth to consume him, he drove the evil wind while as yet she had not yet shut her lips. He released the arrow. It tore her belly. It cut through her insides, splitting the heart. He cast down her carcass to stand upon it. And as a result of this struggle between these two monsters, Marduk goes on to divide Tiamat's corpse like a shellfish into two halves, two parts, using half to create the earth and the other half to set up as a covering for the heavens. And it came complete with some bars to stop the waters of chaos overflowing and destroying the creation. Now, that kind of point of view, uh, the world has actually been made not so much out of nothing and brought into being by a living and true creator. It's the result of a fight between two monsters. One was which was uh, chopped up uh, and used to make parts of the cosmos. They're certainly pushing a different kind of wheelbarrow of belief, aren't they, to uh, what we get in a picture from the Psalms, is the creation coming very powerfully from God's ordered hand. It's not surprising that even today people have different views which they accept about uh, our creation. They don't think of it necessarily from God's point of view. In an article I read about the development of the environmental movement in Australia recently uh, and the saving of the Franklin Dam, which took place in 1983, I learnt that uh, the Wilderness Society grew from a very small movement to a very large one. The issue of the um, damming of the Franklin River became an issue that divided Tasmania uh, as a state. The uh, Tasmania Labor government got thrown out on, this, on these grounds. Uh, and the topic was really about whether to dam a river and use the uh, hydroelectricity uh, to you know, pay for power bills and things and also to create jobs, or whether to protect river catchments. And later on, this uh, issue became such a big topic that uh, even the Fraser government, uh, which was actually on the wrong side of the people who wanted to look after the Franklin, uh, ended up becoming a government that also got caught up in it and ultimately fell. The uh, battle to save the Franklin involved the power of photos and film. And you might have seen some of them. There's actually a picture called was it the Rock Island Bend on the Franklin. And it had a picture of swirling waters moving quickly through a rocky landscape with a mist hovering above it. And it featured in uh, election posters as well with a caption underneath saying, could you vote for a party that will destroy this? But this movement wasn't necessarily led by Christians. Uh, this wasn't a movement that grew out of the conviction that the earth is the Lord's and everything within it. It was more growing out of uh, an idea that people love the creation but not the creator. They worship and serve created things instead of the creator. And it's closer to the idea of pantheism, which assumes that Mother Nature is in creation 
and Mother Nature's in people and that people are in Mother Nature and that together we are Mother Nature. Or in the words of some pantheists, like the author Neil Donald Walsh, together we are God. Well, an example we see of that is uh, the idea from Bob Brown, who was uh, formerly the, uh, the leader of the Tasmanian Wilderness Society. He's now a senator for the Greens for, I think, the third time running. Prior to his trip down the Franklin River, he described himself in these terms as a mystified and detached observer of the universe. There he is, kind of very well detached. But after his trip down the Franklin, this is how he described himself, he now felt fused into the inexplicable mystery of nature. But the idea that people can be somehow fused into the mystery of nature is probably a step away from the realities that are pointed out in Psalm 24, where we see a personal God who's not confused with creation, a personal God who is transcendent and separate from his creation and his creatures. The Bible affirms that although we can be reconciled to this creator God, it remains true that we still do not become God ourselves, not by our experience on a raft going down a river, nor by any other means. In fact, God remains gloriously separate from his creatures, and God's glory belongs to God alone, not to be shared with any man. And finally, what Bob Brown describes as the inexplicable mystery of nature, the Bible affirms and explains as God's good intention coming into being. It's not a mystery at one level. It's from God. He made it good. That's how it is. But given that we understand these things, given that we understand that it is God's good world, it would be also nice to think, wouldn't it, that Christians are also concerned about not just subduing the earth uh, and enjoying the resources so that we can enjoy wooden pews to sit on and you know, bricks to hold up a roof that keeps us out of the rain. But it's also good to think that we can understand the world is a wonderful thing which we can enjoy and also manage very carefully. Well, in the next section of Psalm 24, David moves from a declaration of God being the one who owns everything to the place that God chooses to dwell, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And David raises some uh, very good questions for us to grapple with. Questions about who it will be, who qualifies to draw near to God's presence. In verse 3 he says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? In other words, David's asking, Who are the ones who can draw near to God? Who can even stand instead of bowing, perhaps even to ask for God's blessing? And the answer from the psalm is given in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. That is, uh, someone who's got clean hands uh, is opposed to someone who's got blood on their hands. Someone who has a pure heart is someone who is genuine in their attitude both towards God and towards other people. 
Someone who doesn't lift up their soul to an idol is someone who trusts in God alone as opposed to puts their trust in any other thing in creation. And someone who doesn't swear by what is false is someone who tells the truth. Ultimately, the answer is that those who qualify to come near to God, to present their request to him and ask God to bless them and to shine his face upon them, those are God's faithful people. Those people are the repentant ones. They're the ones who are genuine in their walk with the Lord. And verse 5 tells us that God's faithful people are the ones who will take a a blessing from the Lord. We see this in verse 5 and 6. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. A God of Jacob. In the past, God had gone to great lengths to provide a sacrificial system whereby people could maintain their relationship with him, where they could live with him as their king uh, in their midst. God had rescued his people in order to set them into his uh, promised land where they might live with him as king. But unfortunately, as we uh, take an even cursory glance over the Old Testament, we see that not everybody uh, chose or was keen to serve the Lord. Instead, we're reminded that people turned aside and worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreths and uh, the god Moloch. But those people who would be coming to ask God for his blessing, who would be asking God to shine his face upon them and to look after them, before they could come to God in prayer... Uh, to be with him on his holy hill. They had to be repentant people. They had to be the people who were going to be genuine uh, before they could front God. And it seems to be these kinds of people that David has in mind in this psalm. Now we know that on the one hand, no one is ever completely faithful to God. And that if we waited for that time of perfection to come, then it would probably never happen. We'd never come to God. Because we know that the Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible tells us is so. But the Bible also reminds us that we can get right with God because Romans chapter 3, verse 24 tells us that. We are justified or acquitted freely by his grace through the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. And we know that since we are God's people, God calls us to a life of faithfulness. That's the challenge for us. And Jesus echoes these words about the pure in heart in his Sermon on the Mount. Did you remember the illusion? We're told that the the pure in heart will come before God and stand in his presence. And Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I was reading a book on Australian history recently and I came across a chapter on the swinging 60s and the introduction of the contraceptive pill into Australia in January 1961. The article asked a natural question. Was there a link between the development of the most reliable contraceptive technology in the history of the world and the sexual revolution? For it is a fact that the pill has had an enormous impact on the lives 
of millions of Australians. I think the fact that there was only two boys in my family means it could have had an impact on my life too. And by 1970, it had dominated all other forms of contraception. But listen to this comment made by a 20-year-old woman living in the late 1960s, having moved from a family farm in New England to live in Sydney. I'm really too young to get tied down. You never know what's around the corner, and it's more fun hunting than settling. These days, you get on the pill and you stop worrying. The pill's changed everything. Now, if a girl's over 20 and she is still a virgin, there's something wrong with her. The pill has changed everything. Well, perhaps the pill has changed a lot of things. I'm not going to deny it. But do you think Jesus would be proud of us if we had that kind of attitude? Is that the kind of attitude that he wants his people to have? And certainly the pill is not all the woman's problem either, is it? One female commentator called the pill the best thing men ever invented for men because it ensured women's constant sexual availability and men's abandonment of old ideals of honour. What does Jesus think about that kind of attitude? That the pills become a good invention for men because they can treat women how they like and they can abandon that old ideal of honour in relationships. Is that the kind of attitude that Jesus wants his people to have? I raise these points because when God's word calls us to be people who are pure in heart, I think that's what God wants us to be. I think he wants us to be different from the people of the world who have those kinds of attitudes. If we claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus, then God calls us to be the pure in heart. But are we always pure in heart? Well, of course, we know the answer to that question, even as it comes into our minds. No, the answer is. But does that change the challenge for us to be pure in heart? Can we just chuck the challenge out because we don't get it 100% right all the time? Does the challenge from Psalm 24 and from Jesus to be pure in heart still stand? Well, yes, it does. God calls us to be pure in heart despite the fact that we'll never be without sin in this life. Nonetheless, God's challenge remains the same. And that's the challenge we need to be wrestling with in our struggle against sin each day and each week. Psalm 24 takes another turn now. And it starts to teach us about who it is that we worship. In a world that forgets that God reigns as king, we're challenged to take a reality check and recall who God is and see things from his perspective. And we pick it up at verse 7 through to 10. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He's the king of glory. Well, the gates and the doors are given life in a figurative way, aren't they? They're then given the heads up, so to speak, 
on the important news that the King of Glory is about to enter his temple. And this imagery casts our minds back perhaps to the time when David brought the Ark of the Covenant, which um, symbolised God's presence amongst his people, was the pedestal of God or the footstool. Uh, God was enthroned above the cherubim and God made his special place on Mount Zion in the midst of his people. And verse 8 raises the question and asks about who the identity is of this coming one. The answer tells us something about who God is. He's Yahweh, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Here we note that God's cast in terms of a warrior who fights for his people. In fact, one of the roles of the king in the ancient world was to actually go out in battle uh, and fight their victories, fight their battles for them and bring them victory. And we see that God is given this, um, I guess, perspective as well uh, in Exodus chapter 15. Moses and the Israelites celebrate not only that God's actually given them deliverance out of Egypt, they celebrate the fact that God's actually triumphed over Pharaoh and his army. Let me read you a little bit of Exodus 15, the song of the sea, as it's called. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing unto the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he is hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Well, the Spirit of God is reminding us in these passages that God is not dead. God is not impotent. And nor is he disinterested in his world or his people. On the contrary, God reveals to us in the Bible that he's been a warrior for his people. In the past, he's fought for them. And he's continued to act to save his people, even us in these last days. God reminds us in the word that he took on flesh and entered the world. John chapter 1 reminds us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Today's psalm about the king of glory helps us to understand the mystery of Mary's child. The baby born in the stable was the king of glory. Jesus himself, when he predicted the destruction of the temple by the Gentiles, the Romans, said, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. He understood that he was God coming to his people. And Jesus, who entered the holy city only to be rejected and then executed, it was this Jesus who was indeed the hidden king of glory, who was raised and exalted and lifted up to the highest place and given the name that is above every other name, the name that every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess one day that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we see in Jesus is the servant king who laid aside his glory. Mysteriously, he was fully God and fully man, which is what our Westminster Larger Catechism 
starts to summarize in its teaching about the Bible, about Jesus. It says he was of one substance and equal with the Father. In the fullness of time became a man. And so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. Well, it's a complex mystery. But it's funny how, in principle, in, with the top of our minds, we can agree that Jesus is Lord, that he's fully God yet fully man, and that God does reign as king over all things. Yet so often we can feel like we're speaking a different life language to popular opinion. We can feel like we're swimming against the tide of the way that the world thinks about life. I began this talk when I talked about how Christians can live out different principles that are far different from the universes next door. But the good news for us, friends, is that there is only one universe and ultimately it's God's universe. And so we need to be thinking in terms of the way God calls us to think because any other way of thinking is just a delusion. God reigns as king. One day when Jesus returns again, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and people will see God's kingship for what it is. But until then, God encourages us and challenges us to be faithful disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, to be those people who are working at being pure in heart and to walk closely with the Lord each day. And may we have a go at that this week to continue to struggle on as his people and persevere to the end, enjoying life with Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you that you are the King of glory that the earth is yours and everything that's within it. And Father, we thank you that you've brought us into relationship with yourself, that Jesus came into the world, that he lived and died on our behalf, that we might experience your forgiveness and a freedom from guilt. Father, we thank you that we can repent and turn back to you and enjoy living with you as our God and know the freedom from guilt and condemnation that we can stand and remember each week the good truths that we are your children and that we enjoy life with you lord god we thank you that we can repent and present our request to you and ask you to help us and to bless us in life help us to persevere as your people and father we thank you that this morning we've been reminded once again that despite the fact we may be a minority group in in Australia, Bible-believing Christians, that you might help us to remember again life from your point of view, that you are the king of glory. Whether people recognise your kingship or not, one day it will become very clear. So we ask that you'd strengthen us now to live as your people, and we thank you for this time to encourage each other in our Lord Jesus. We pray for these things in his name. Amen.